0: This book was written by Sir Hugh Walpole and published in 1917. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who reached out during the week. Firstly, thank you to the following iTunes listeners for leaving a review on iTunes US. Linen Badenelle, I'm glad you find the podcast is helping out when you're anxious. Floating Lily Flower, I'm glad you find the podcast calming. M. Farsbertal It's good to hear that the podcast works like magic. And The Claw Your review was very thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you, of course, to all the Spotify listeners who responded to the Q&A. I'm glad the podcast is helping you doze off. And finally, thank you to all of the listeners who reached out on Instagram. James Clark, thank you for your lovely message. And Matthew White, thank you for your kind message and thoughts. As always, a massive thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon or Anchor. With a financial monthly contribution. I am ever so grateful for your financial contribution to the podcast. The podcast is completely free, and it's thanks to your support that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. If you like, you can also say hello to me at boytosleep.com. You can find me on Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Green Mirror. A Quiet Story. Chapter 1. The Ceremony. The Fog had swallowed up the house, and the house had submitted. So thick was the fog that the towers of Westminster Abbey, the river, and the fat complacency of the church in the middle of the square, even the three plain trees in front of the old gate, and the heavy old-fashioned porch had all vanished together leaving in their place the rattle of a cab, the barking of a dog, isolated sounds that ascended plaintively from a lost, a submerged world. The house had indeed, in its time, seen many fogs for it had known, its first one in the days of Queen Anne, And even then, it had yielded, without surprise and without curiosity, to its tyranny. On the brightest of days, this was a solemn, unenterprising, unimaginative building, standing foursquare to all the winds, its windows planted solidly, securely its vigorous propriety, well-suited to its safe, unagitated surroundings. Its faded red brick had weathered many London storms, and would weather many more. That old, quiet square, with its uneven stones, its church, and its plain trees, had the Abbey, the Houses of Parliament, the River for its guardians, the skies might fall, the Thames burst into a flaming fire, Rundle Square would not stir from its tranquility. The old house, number 5, Rundle Square, had for its most charming feature its entrance. First came an old iron gate guarded On either side by weather beaten stone pillars. Then a cobbled path, with little green lawns to the right and left of it, ran to the door, whose stolidity was crowned with an old porch of dim red brick. This was unusual enough for London, but there the gate, the little garden, The porch had stood for some hundreds of years, and that progress that had already its throttling fingers about London's neck had as yet left Rundle Square to its staid property. Westminster abides like a little cathedral town at the heart of London, One is led to it through Whitehall, through Victoria Street, through Belgravia, over Westminster Bridge with preparatory caution. The thunder of London sinks as the traveller approaches, dying gradually as though the spirit of the town warned you, with his finger at his lip. To the roar of the traffic there succeeds the solemn striking of Big Ben, the chiming of the abbey bells, so narrow and winding are many of the little streets that such traffic, as penetrates through them, proceeds slowly, cautiously, almost sleepily, There are old buildings and grass squares, many clergymen, schoolboys in black gowns and battered top hats, and at the corners one may see policemen motionless, solemn, stationed one supposes to threaten disturbance or agitation. There is, it seems, no impulse here, to pile many more events upon the lap of the day, than the poor thing can decently hold. Behind the windows of Westminster life, is passing, surely, with easy tranquility, the very doorbells are, many of them, old and uncomfortable, unsuited to any frantic ringing, There does not sound through every hour the whirring clang of workmen flinging with eager haste into the reluctant air hideous and contemptuous buildings. Dust does not rise in blinding clouds from the tortured corpses of old and happy houses. Those who live here live long. Number 5, Rundle Square, then, had its destiny in pleasant places. Upon a fine summer evening, the old red brick with its windows staring complacently upon a comfortable world showed a fine colour. Its very chimneys were square and solid, its eaves and water pipes regular and mathematical. Whatever horrid catastrophe might convulse the rest of London, number five would suffer no hurt. The god of propriety, the strongest of all the gods, had it beneath his care. Now behind the fog it waited, as it had waited so often before, with certain assurances for its release. Inside the house at about half past four, upon this afternoon, November 8th in the year, 1902, young Henry Trenchard was sitting alone. He was straining his eyes over a book, that had interested him so deeply that he could not leave it in order to switch on the electric light. His long nose stuck into the book's very heart and his eyelashes almost brushed the paper. The drawing room where he was had caught some of the fog and kept it, and Henry Trenchard's only light was the fading glow of a red, cavernous fire. Henry Trenchard, now nineteen years of age, had known, in all those nineteen years, no change in that old drawing room. As an ugly and tiresome baby, he had wailed before the sombre indifference of that old, stiff green wallpaper a little brighter than, perhaps, had sprawled upon the same old green carpet, had begged to be allowed to play with the same collection of little scent bottles and stones and rings and miniatures that lay now in the same decent symmetry, in the same narrow glass-topped table, over... By the window. It was by shape and design as a heavy room, slipping into its true spirit with the London dusk, the London fog, and the London lamp-lit winter afternoon, seeming awkward, stiff, almost affronted, before the sunshine and summer weather. One or two trenchards, two soldiers and a bishop, were there in heavy old gold frames, two ponderous glass-fronted bookcases, guarded from any frivolous touch-high stiff-backed volumes of Gibbons and Richardson and Hooker. There were some old watercolours of faded green lawns, dim rocks and seas with neglected boats upon the sand, all these painted in the stiff precision of the thirties and the forties, smoked and fogged a little in their thin black frames. Upon one round table, indeed, there was a concession to the modern spirit in the latest numbers of the Cornhill, and Blackwood magazines, the Quarterly Review, and the Hibbert Journal. The chairs in the room were, for the most part, stiff with gilt backs, and wore a don't-you-dare-sit-down-upon-me I but two armchairs near the fire, of old green leather, were comfortable enough, and upon one of these, Henry was now sitting. Above the wide stone fireplace was a large old gold mirror, a mirror that took into its expanse the whole of the room, so that standing before it, with your back to the door, you could see everything that happened behind you. The mirror was old and gave to the view that it embraced some old comfortable touch so that everything within it was soft and still at rest. Now, in the gloom and shadow, the reflection was green and dark with the only point of colour, the fading fire. Before it a massive gold clock with the figures of the Three Graces, stiff and angular, at its summit ticked away as though it were the voice of a very old gentleman telling an interminable story. It served indeed for the voice of the mirror itself. Henry was reading a novel that showed upon its back Moody's bright yellow label. He was reading as the clock struck half-past four, these words. I sat on the stump of a tree at his feet, and below us stretched the land, the great expanse of the forests, sombre under the sunshine, rolling like a sea, with glints of winding rivers, the grey spots of villages, and here and there a clearing, like an islet of light amongst the dark waves of continuous treetops. A brooding gloom lay over this vast and monotonous landscape. The light fell on it as if into an abyss. The land devoured the sunshine. Only far off along the coast, the empty ocean smooth and polished within the faint bays, seemed to rise up to the sky in a wall of steel. And there I was with him, high on the sunshine on top of that historic hill. The striking of the clock brought him away from the book with a jerk. So deep had he been sunk in that he looked now about the dusky room with a startled, uncertain gaze. The familiar place settled once more about him and, with a little sigh, he sank back into his chair. His thin, bony legs stuck out in front of him. One trouser leg was hitched up and his sock falling down over his boot left bare part of his calf. His boots had not been laced tightly, and the tongues had slipped aside, showing his sock. He was a long, thin youth, his hair untidy, his black tie up at the back of his collar. One white and rather ragged cuff had slipped down over his wrist. The other was invisible. His eyes were grey and weak. He had a long pointed nose, with two freckles on the very end of it. But his mouth was kindly, although too large and indeterminate. His cheeks were thin and showed high cheekbones. His chin was pronounced enough to be strong, but nevertheless helped him very little. He was tidy and ungainly, but not entirely unattractive. His growth was at the stage when nature has not made up its mind as to the next, the final move. That may, after all, be something very pleasant. His eyes now were dreamy and soft because he was thinking of the book. No book, perhaps, in all his life before had moved him so deeply and he was very often moved, but as a rule, by cheap and sentimental emotions. He knew that he was cheap. He knew that he was sentimental. He very often hated and despised himself. He could see the forests rolling like a sea. It was as though he himself had been perched upon that high, bright hill, and he was exalted. He felt with the same exaltation, the space and the freedom, the liberty, the picture, of a world wherein anything might happen, where heroes, fugitives, scoundrels, cowards, Conquerors all alike Might win their salvation Room for everyone No one to pull one up No one to make one ashamed of what one says and does No crowd watching one's every movement Adventures for the wishing and courage to meet them He looked about the room and hated it the old shabby hemmed-in thing. He hated this life to which he was condemned. He hated himself, his world, his uninspiring future. My God, I must do something. I will do something. But suppose I can't. His head fell again. Suppose he were out in that other world, there in the heart of those dark forests. Suppose that he found that he did no better there than here. That would be indeed the most terrible thing of all. He gazed up into the mirror, saw in it the reflection of the room, the green walls, the green carpet, The old faded green place like moss covering dead ground. Soft, damp, dark, and beyond outside the mirror. The world of the forests. The great expanse of forests and beyond the ocean. Smooth and polished. Rising up to the sky in a wall of steel. His people, his family... His many, many relations, his world, he thought, were all inside the mirror, all embedded in that green, soft, silent enclosure. He saw stretching from one end of England to the other, in all provincial towns, in neat little houses, with neat little gardens in cathedral cities with their sequestered closes, in villages with the deep green lanes leading up to the rectory gates, in old country houses hemmed in by wide, stretching fields, in little lost places by the sea, all these persons happily, peacefully sunk up to their very necks in the green moss, Within the mirror this, outside the mirror, the rolling forests, guarded by the shining wall of sea. His own family passed before him. His grandfather, his great-aunt Sarah, his mother and his father, Aunt Aggie and Aunt Betty, Uncle Tim, Millicent, Catherine. He paused then. The book slipped away and fell onto the floor. Catherine, dear Catherine, he did not care what she was, and then swept by a fresh wave of feeling springing up, stretching his arms, facing the room. He did not care what any of them were, He was the idiot, the discontented, ungrateful idiot. He loved them all. He wouldn't change one of them. He wouldn't be in any other family in all the world. The door opened. In came old Rocket, the staff and prop of the family. To turn up the lights and to poke the fire. In a minute, tea would come. Why, Mr. Henry, no fire nor lights, he shuffled to the windows, pulling the great heavy curtains across them. His knees were cracking very slowly as he bent, picked up the book and laid it carefully on the table next to the Hibbert journal. I hope you've not been reading, Mr. Henry, in this bad light, he said. Later, between nine and half past, Henry was sitting with his father and his uncle, smoking and drinking after dinner. Tonight was an evening of ceremony, the family ceremony of the year. Therefore, although the meal had been an extremely festive one with many flowers, the perfect mountain of fruit in the huge silver bowl in the centre of the table, and the most sacred of all ports, produced on this occasion and Christmas Day. Nevertheless, only the family had been present. No distant relations, even certainly no friends. This was Grandfather Trenchard's birthday. The ladies vanished. There remained only Henry his father, and Uncle Tim. Henry was sitting there, very self-conscious, over his glass of port. He was always very self-conscious when Uncle Tim was present. Uncle Tim was a fonder, and was large-limbed and absent-minded, like Henry's father. Uncle Tim had a wild head of grey hair, a badly kept grey beard and clothed his long, loose figure in long, loose garments. He was here today and gone tomorrow. Preferred the country to the town and had a little house down in Glevershire, where he led an untidy bachelor existence whose motive impulses were birds and flowers. Henry was very fond of Uncle Tim, He liked his untidiness, his careless geniality, his freedom and his happiness. Henry's father, George Trenchard, was splendid, that thought Henry was the only possible word and the boy, surveying other persons' fathers, wondered why Catherine Millicent and himself should have been chosen, out of all the world, to be so favoured. George Trenchard, at this time, about sixty years of age, was over six feet in height and broad in proportion. He was growing too stout. His hair was grey and the top of his head bald. His eyes were brown and absent-minded. His mouth large with a lurking humour in its curves. His cheeks were fat and round and there was the beginning of a double chin. He walked always in a rambling, rolling kind of way, like a sea captain on shore, still balancing himself to the swing of his vessel, his hands deep sunk into his trouser pockets. Henry had been privileged sometimes to see him when absorbed in the evolution of an essay or the chapter of some book, he is, of course, one of our foremost authorities on the early nineteenth century period of English literature, especially Hazlitt and De Quincey. He rolled up and down his study with his head back, his hands sunk in his pockets, whistling a little tune. Very wonderful, he seemed to Henry then. He was the most completely careless of Optimus, refusing to be brought down to any stern fact whatever, hated any strong emotion or stringent relations with anyone, treated his wife and children as the most delightful accidents against whom he had, most happily tumbled His kindness of heart was equally only by the lightning speed with which he forgot the benefits that he had conferred and the persons upon whom he had conferred them. Like a happy bird, he went caroling through life. Alone, of all living beings, his daughter Catherine had bound him to her with cords For the rest, he loved and forgot them all. Now, on this family occasion of his father's birthday, his father was 87 today, he was absolutely happy. He was proud of his family when any definite occasion such as this compelled him to think of it. He considered that it had all been a very jolly, pleasant dinner, that there would certainly follow a very jolly pleasant evening. He liked especially to have his brother, Timothy, with him. He loved them all, blessed their hearts, he felt as he assured them. Not a day, more than twenty. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. In the meantime, good night.